You know, we live in a broken world. A world filled with sadness and death. And uh, in fact, we see it so much, sometimes we get a little calloused to all of the sadness and sickness and death that we see. We're told, Spirit of Prophecy, that when uh, Adam and Eve saw that first leaf fall from the tree, that first leaf that turned brown and died, that tears filled their eyes. This morning, in driving to church, I saw a little squirrel that had been run over by a car. Didn't think twice about it. Just kept on going. We live in a broken world, don't we? And that brokenness, that brokenness has touched each and every one of us. And there's many people around the world, many religions around the world that are trying to make sense of the brokenness of our world. If you um, are into Eastern mystical philosophy, which sees that good and evil are balancing forces, you'll say, you would say something like, well... The evil or the suffering or the pain in, in this world is just the, the necessary uh, balancing force to the, the other side of the coin, all the good in the world. And uh, we have to have both of them in our world. They've, they've always existed, always will exist. The yin and the yang, the, the good and the evil. It's, it's all just part of this cosmic universe. But I, I'd like you to know that that, that, that was never God's plan. Evil was never God's plan. Suffering was never God's plan. Death was never in the plan of God. Disease and decay are in the plans of God to be destroyed. Revelation 21.4 says God will wipe, how many tears? Every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no nor sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. God's plan is that the, the evil in our world, the sorrow in our world would pass away. Never was part of God's plan. Well, if, you're, if you lean more towards the other side of monotheistic religions, Islam and Judaism, you might say evil was created by God that God has a purpose for evil in this world that our all-knowing God created evil that suffering is, uh, is part of what God brought into this world but suffering was not in the original design yes God uses suffering to his glory and honor God is able to take pain and brokenness and use it to his glory and honor amen he can take the, the deepest and darkest moments that we face in life and bring us through those and teach us something of His glory and of His grace. But it was not part of God's original plan. God didn't create evil. Titus 1 verse 2 says that God cannot lie. If God created evil, if God created suffering and sin... Where did lying come from if God cannot lie? 
James 1 verse 13 says, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. If evil and sin came from God, and God can't tempt anybody, according to the Bible, who tempts mankind if temptation does not come from God? The Bible records that everything that God made in the beginning and everything that he will remake in the end is perfect is good is righteous when God said let there be light it was pure and perfect light when God said, let there be plants and trees, there was no death or decay, no brown and dying withered leaves. Every branch and limb and root was beautiful and good. When God created the animals, there was no death, no lions eating little lambs, no tigers chasing down a doe in the field, no serpents to bite from their holes. There was no sin nor suffering nor violence nor death in all the animal kingdom when God created the animals in the beginning. How do we know? Isaiah 11 verse 6 tells us, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, which is a goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Anybody here heard of wildlife safari? Yeah. I would not let my children lead the lions in wildlife safari, would you? But in heaven, those ferocious felines will be but calm kitties in heaven, just as they were in the Garden of Eden. Isaiah 65, 25, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, saith the Lord. At the end of creation week, God looked at everything he had made. And in Genesis 1.31, when God surveyed everything he made, what was it that he said? It is very good. Don't be deceived into thinking that God is the one who longed or had planned for there to be uh, suffering in this world. It was not part of God's plan. God did not instill or inject evil into the world, didn't create evil, didn't create suffering. When God created mankind, God created him perfect. I want you to know there were no Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton scandals in the Garden of Eden. There were no terrorist shootings, no children's hospitals. There wasn't gang violence or corrupt and greedy corporations. God created mankind perfect and intended for us to remain in that condition. Perfect physically, perfect mentally, perfect emotionally. Our EQ was meant to be way up here. Perfect spiritually and morally. We were created to reflect the image of God for Genesis uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says God created man in his own image 
And in case we think that was just man, it says, In the image of God he created him male and female. Created he them. To reflect the image of God, we need men and women. We need them. We need them both. A society of just females is a short-lived society. A society of just males won't last very long. Maybe a little bit longer than just a society of females. I used to work with a whole bunch of women in a medical eye center. I was the only man, and there was probably about 40 ladies. And let me, let me tell you, I put on my armor when I went to, to work every day because I knew there was going to be a fight. <laughs> now, they were all good. They taught me a lot. We need men and women to reflect the glory and honor of God. And men and women need each other in order to reflect the glory and honor of God. Bible says it's not good for man to be alone. He needs a help me. Somebody who can help him in his journey. And women need men in their life. Somebody who can help them in their journey. Together we're to reflect God's character. Psalms 8 verses 3 through 5. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. In the beginning God created men and women perfect, beautiful, strong, healthy, clear minds, stable emotions and a morality a, a moral compass that would stand for the truth of God we can know friends that it was never God's plan that man should ever taste the bitter fruit of sin suffering, sorrow and death but from the beginning of time God had declared what would be the result of disobedience to his law Genesis 2.17 says, But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Romans 6.23, say it with me, For the wages of sin is death. And we know the end, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isaiah 59 verse 2, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. Now some may say, but taking fruit seems like such a small sin. Such a little, a little sin to pluck that fruit from the tree. There's one principle that binds the entire universe together and it is love manifested through perfect obedience. That one principle binds everything together. You know, the laws of God are obeyed throughout the universe. God's laws don't bend. They don't change. If the law of God called gravity bent, changed, 
or fluctuated at any point in, uh, in the history of our universe, our whole universe would fall apart. It depends on gravity staying the same. It depends on the weak nuclear force, strong nuclear force, speed of light, all of those things being perfectly constant. Because if any of those laws of physics, which are the laws of God, bent or crumbled or flexed or changed, the universe would not hold together. Everything depends upon every atom of the universe perfectly obeying and following the laws which God has set up. If they stray from it, even a, uh, a little bit, it creates disaster for the whole universe. In Acts of the Apostles, page 312, Sister White says, One sin cherished is sufficient to work degradation of character and to mislead others. One sin. Now, I'd like to illustrate that for you. Uh, how God sees one little sin. Now, I want you to uh, imagine that your pastor this morning is going to make you chocolate muffins. Maybe you don't like chocolate muffins. Maybe this morning I'll make for you vanilla muffins. Or maybe you like hot blueberry muffins. So I make for you hot blueberry muffins. I pull them out of the stove. They're steaming here before you. And uh, before you take a muffin, I just want to warn you that before I came into the kitchen to make these muffins, I had a few household errands to do out in the cow pasture. One of my duties at home is to make sure that all of the patties are picked up before breakfast. And I found a few fresh ones as I was picking them up. And I didn't notice it until I was making the muffins but some of it was on my arm, and as I stirred, part of what ended up from the field, from those cows, must have landed on my arm, and it, it fell off into the muffin mix, and I couldn't quite find it in all of that chocolate mess, so I, I just kept stirring. But the muffins are done, and I guarantee it wasn't a whole patty. It was just a very little bit. Will you eat my muffins? <laughs> now, what if in that moment, just before you eat the, those muffins, I paused and said, wait a minute. That actually might not have been from the cows. I just remembered I was also cleaning the pig's pen. It might have been from the pig's. Anyone want pastor's special blueberry muffins? No way. And the reason why is because the Bible is true when it says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. One sin was enough to ruin the entire character of Adam and Eve. One sin was enough to ruin the whole lump. No matter how big 
or how small it may be, one single sin strips us of our right to eternal life, to heaven, and begins an irreversible slide towards death without the intervention of God. There is no small sin, just like there is no small cow patty when it comes to blueberry muffins. You can't get one small enough. So what is sin? 1 John 3 verse 4 tells us that sin is the transgression of the law of God. Romans 5.13, it says, Sin is not imputed where there is no law. Without God's law, there would be no sin because sin is breaking God's law. Now, I want to be clear today. The Bible does not teach that Adam and Eve sinned by simply being tempted by the serpent. Sin is not temptation. That's the precursor to sin. You with me? Sin is also not guilt. That is the result of sin. All right? You still with me? Sin only occurs when we choose to reject God's plan for our life. Sin always involves a choice. Sin always involves a choice. I'd like you to say that with me. Sin always involves a choice. Always. Choice is a precious gift that God has given to humanity. It's something that God refuses to violate. We will always have choice. God could have made us robots. Oh, yes, He could have. The God who... The God who created the sun, moon, and stars... Without choice, they have to follow the path which God has laid out for them. The God who calls the sea and says the sea, to the sea, here you can, you can come, but no further. You know, the oceans don't have a choice. Where God draws the line, they can't cross it. They don't have a choice. The sun rises every day and sets every day regardless of its choice. But you know, God can put a line in the sand for you, and you have a choice. God can draw a line for you. And you and I can choose to disregard that line. And friends, when we step over that line, when we choose to cross it, that is when it becomes sin. Sin always involves a choice. James chapter 4, verse 17 tells us, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Sin always or only occurs when we violate something that is known. Are there mistakes you've committed in your life that you didn't find out were mistakes until later? Anybody here? Yes. 
Is it sin before you knew? No, it is not sin before you knew. Because the Bible says to him who knew, knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. It was not sin before you knew. Now many of you have grown up beating yourself over the head because you made mistakes in your life before you knew. And you think, what an awful person I am to have made mistakes. Friends, the mistakes that God cares about are the mistakes that you knew better about. Yeah, the Lord, the Lord does care about bringing us to perfection. But I want you to know that Satan will try everything he can to discourage us in our walk with God. To bring us down and to implant and instill inside us that, that whole thought, you know, I might as well just give up. But I want you to know that sin is not accounted unless you know unless you have a choice, because sin always involves choice. This was a, uh, a thought, a concept that came up during the early Advent movement. When the Adventists discovered the seventh-day Sabbath, they weren't quite sure when to keep the seventh-day Sabbath. And so what they decided to do is, you know, let's just say at 5 o'clock, from 5 o'clock Friday to 5 o'clock uh, Saturday night, that's when we should keep our Sabbath. And so many Adventists kept the Sabbath from 5 o'clock to 5 o'clock. And then Ellen White was given a vision. And in the vision she was shown by the Lord. An angel was sent by God to instruct her in the vision. And the angel told her, he said, uh, it is not okay for the Adventists to keep their Sabbath from 5 o'clock Friday to 5 o'clock Saturday because that is not what the Word of God says. They are in error. They have made a mistake. From evening till evening you shall celebrate your Sabbaths. From sundown to sundown, from sunset to sunset, said the angel. And so Ellen White asked the angel, well, has the frown, is the frown of God upon us? because we haven't been following this, uh, this right path all along? And this is what the angel said. First Testimonies. Testimonies, volume 1, page 116. Said the angel, If light come, and that light is set aside or rejected, then comes condemnation and the frown of God. But before the light comes... There is no sin, for there is no light for them to reject. This is an important concept for our church to understand because we will not be condemned for the mistakes and errors in our life. We will be condemned in the end for the light that we rejected. Is there a difference? There is a difference. Testimonies, Volume 4, page 358. There is no sin in having temptations, but sin comes when temptation is yielded to. You 
You know, this, this also touches the topic, in a very touchy topic in Christianity. The Bible does not teach that we are responsible for the sins of our parents or our grandparents or our great-grandparents going all the way back to Adam. We do not bear the guilt of Adam's sin or our father's sin. The Bible teaches that we bear the guilt of our our own sin. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. Says that the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Ezekiel 18:20. The idea that we are guilty because of Adam's sin is called the doctrine of original sin. Anybody heard of the doctrine of original sin? Where did the doctrine of original sin come from? If you go back in history, the first individual to espouse this doctrine was a Catholic priest by the name of Irenaeus, a bishop of Lyon. He was uh, served during the 2nd century A.D., born 103 A.D., died 202 A.D. So he was within the first hundred years of the newly formed Christian church. He was a Catholic priest. And what you'll find intrinsic in Irenaeus' writings is that the surest source of Christian guidance is the Church of Rome. Does that put any red flags up for anybody? All right, this is what Irenaeus said about original sin. All human beings participate in Adam's sin and share his guilt. But I want you to know this idea of sharing this original sin or sharing the sin of our forefathers did not originate with Irenaeus. It goes back even further. The Greek mystery religions, the mystery religions of Greek, Greece, uh, the god Zeus and all of those Olympian gods, all of that whole religious system uh, had at its foundation the idea that humanity pays for the sins of their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents going all the way back, that we are paying for the sins of our ancestors, that we are guilty of the sins of our ancestors, bear the guilt of our sins of, the, of our ancestors. But the idea of original sin, um, what does the Bible tell us about this idea of bearing the guilt of our ancestors? Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children. Nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Jeremiah 31, 29 through 30. In those days they, sh they shall say no more, The fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. And then you go to Romans chapter 2, verse 6. 
it says, who will render to every man according to his deeds or his works. And you continue to go through the Bible and you find out that when we are judged at the end of time, it will not be for the works of our fathers or our grandfathers or our great-grandfathers. We are judged for our own works. Why? Because we are judged for what we chose. Not what somebody else chose. Does that make sense? We are judged for the light that we had, not for the light somebody else had. In the end of time, you will stand not based on your heritage, but based on your relationship with Christ. Does that bring you joy, friends? Isn't that good news? You know, there's many, many an individual that look back at their family tree and they see many a dark spots. What a joy to know that those dark, dark spots are not dark spots that I have to bear. Just as we can't be condemned by someone else's sin, the opposite is true. We can't be saved by someone else's righteousness. Ezekiel 14, verse 20, Though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. You know, sometimes I meet individuals and they tell me what generation Adventists they are. Anybody? You ever been there? <laughs> First generation. That's the best generation to be. I... Uh, I don't want to minimize the blessings of having grown up in an Adventist home. There is a rich blessing in having grown up in an Adventist home and having been from an Adventist heritage. But at the end of time, there's not a single one of us that's going to say, but Lord, I was a fifth generation Adventist not going to make a difference in the day of judgment. But Lord, my great-grandfather was a missionary for you. I can trace my lineage back to Ellen G. White. I, 23 and me, says so. No. It, it, it won't matter then. What will matter is, what about you, Brother? What about you, sister? Did you make Christ the focus of your life? Did you walk with him as your great-grandfather walked with him? The righteousness of your grandparents will not bring you into heaven. And praise the Lord, the sins of your grandparents won't keep you from heaven. We each stand or fall based on the choices we make to place our faith in the one who died for us and is coming again. Now, we shouldn't be left with the idea that Adam's sin had no impact on humanity because that is not true. 
The impact was major and it affected all humanity. In the same way that Adam's sin affects all humanity, your parents' and grandparents' sins may have affected you today, but you are not destined to repeat them. Exodus 34 verse 7 tells us that God, God said that he would bless to a thousand generations, have a mercy, mercy to a thousand generations. And he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Doesn't say fifth. Doesn't say sixth. The line right there at the fourth. <clears throat> Why is that? I mean, this almost seems like it contradicts the the previous where it says Deuteronomy where it says fathers shall not be put to death for their children or or Ezekiel 18 which says that fathers shall not bear or children shall not bear the sins of their fathers and now we have the Lord saying in Exodus visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation what does that mean well that means that the choices of your great-grandfather may still be affecting you today the choices of your grandfather may still be affecting you today or your grandmother. The choices of your mother may still be affecting you today. But it doesn't mean that, it, that you are destined to repeat those choices. It may affect your life, but it does not control your life. An example, if your great-grandfather drank and went into violent fits of rage while drunk, well, he might have, in a moment of rage, hit your father and gave him a concussion. Let me tell you, your father will tell you the sin of his father really affected him. You can't tell him that the sin of his father didn't affect him. It affected him. And if you went over to your grandfather's house and he was drunk and in a fit of rage he hit you, you'd say, man, the sin of my grandfather affected me. Or let's say you have a broken marriage in your family. You know, divorce affects the children. Divorce affects the grandchildren. Divorce affects, even to a degree, the great-grandchildren. But once you get to the fourth generation, there's the connection has now been lost. I remember my great-grandfather. I don't remember my great-great-grandfather. I've seen pictures of him. Great-great-grandpa Joy. Seen pictures of him, but I never met him. I don't know what he did in his life. I mean, he, he could have he could have committed the worst sins. I, I don't know. I, it, it doesn't really affect my life. But I knew my great-grandfather. His sins affect my life. I knew my grandfather. Sins affect my life. I know my parents. You grow up in, in, a, in, that in the household. Your parents' choices affect your life. But they don't destine you to repeat those choices. How many a man and woman grew up in a horrible family and were redeemed by the grace of God. How many a man and woman came from a broken home where there was violence and abuse and alcohol and drugs and cursing and godlessness 
and Jesus was able to redeem them from the fire. Do they carry scars? Oh, you bet they carry scars. But friends, those scars can stop with that generation. The curse can be cut off. So what does the Bible say Adam's sin affected? Number one, God, God's creation was affected by Adam's sin. Genesis 3.17, God said, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The ground was cursed. Romans 8 verse 20, it says that creation groans, not willing to be subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. All creation groans. We see things dying in our world today because of Adam's sin. Adam's sin affected creation. You know, humanity lost Eden because of Adam's sin. Genesis 3.24 tells us that God put cherubim at the gates to guard the way so that nobody could go into Eden. We lost the right to Eden because of Adam's sin. The Bible tells us that Satan rules this world and has access to all humanity because of Adam's sin. You know, before Adam's sin, Satan only had access to humanity at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? You go to the tree... You, you, Satan has access to you. You go to the bars, Satan has access to you. The Bible tells us that now, because of Adam's sin, Satan has claimed to be prince of this world and claimed to be God of this world. And, and now he tempts and works upon humanity all over this globe because of Adam's sin. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, Whose mind the God of this age has blinded who do not, do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. Ephesians 2.2 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 6.12 calls him and his angels principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness. The uh, Bible says, Be sober and be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That was because of Adam's sin. Number four, we experience a separation from God because of Adam's sin. It's unfortunate, but we do. Desire of Ages, page 116, says, Ever since Adam's sin the human race has been cut off from direct communion with God. Ever wonder why? You know, God doesn't just, God the Father doesn't just walk into this building and speak to us all? Adam sinned. Ever wish that God would paint a message in the sky for you? Lord, how come you don't speak directly? Why in visions? Why in dreams? Why do you have to speak through your prophets? We've been cut off because of Adam's sin between direct communion with God. Doesn't mean that God doesn't try to reach humanity. Doesn't mean that he doesn't give messages to humanity. But he can't give it the same way he did in the Garden of Eden. Because of Adam's sin. Number five, our human nature is fallen because of Adam's sin. In every sphere, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, the sin of Adam has affected the human race. Genesis 3.19 says, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Fallen physical nature. We sweat. 
we hurt, we have pains, we have broken legs, we have diseases, physical nature. In consequence of Adam's sin, death passed upon the whole human race. Great controversy, 544. We die, physical nature. Because of Adam's sin, it affected our physical nature. But it also affects our mental and emotional nature. Our mental and emotional condition. We're not where Adam was in the Garden of Eden today. We just aren't. Wish we were. I mean, I wish I knew a lot more than I do now. How about you? Yeah. I wish I was a lot more emotionally intelligent than I am now. How many of you wish that criticisms didn't hurt? By God's grace, I'm going to keep my eyes focused on Jesus and and keep moving on, right? But criticisms hurt. We struggle with our emotions. We battle with them. Why? Adam's sin. Adam's sin caused that, that, that battle. I mean, when Adam and Eve sinned, the first, for the first time, fear entered the human race. Shame entered the human race. They'd never known these, these emotions before. Guilt entered the human race. For the first time, they felt and struggled and battled with things they had never battled with before. And I want you to know that God has a day when you and I won't have to battle with these sorts of emotions any longer. God has a day when he will deliver us from these emotional, emotional contentions and strifes inside of us. The day's coming, friends. But until then, we've got to pray. We've got to be on our knees and ask the Lord for strength to be emotionally mature Christians and to not be governed by our emotions or controlled by our emotions, to not make decisions based on our emotions. Uh, And lastly, fallen spiritual and moral natures. There's no question that morally and spiritually we are degenerate from what Adam and Eve were. In fact, so degenerate that the Bible says without the interposition of Christ, there would be no hope for humanity. John 15, verse 5, Christ says, Without me, you can do nothing. Believe it, friends. Believe it. There is nothing good that you and I can do apart from Christ. Why? Our natures, our human natures, Natures are degenerate, friends. They're weakened to the place that we cannot, without the help of Christ, get up and move towards God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man, that's our nature, our spiritual nature, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. Galatians 5.17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary one to another so that you do not do the things that you wish. And for this reason, the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Desire of Ages, page 122, in our own strength, it is impossible for us to deny the clamors of our fallen nature. So what is the condition of humanity? Without Christ, we are utterly and morally destitute. We are so weak, it is impossible to follow God. We live in a cursed world that causes us heartache, sadness, and death. 
Satan rules us as slaves and we follow his bidding as if it were our own will. This is the condition of all who are separated from Christ. And this is why we have uh, what we have in our world today. Now we could blame we could blame it on Adam, but the Bible says that all are guilty before God. Mother Teresa, Pope Francis, your favorite elementary school teacher, yes, even your preacher stands before you as one who's sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There will only ever be one remedy to the human condition. A life centered in Jesus Christ. Embrace this truth with your life, friends. There is only one remedy for humanity. Only one thing that can lift us from the ruin that destines us to uh, eternal destruction. And that is Jesus Christ. He is the only hope. That is why Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the water of life. I am who I am. I am is the only one who can save you. Jesus Christ is the hope of this church. He's the hope of your life. Without Jesus, you and I are destined to pay the penalty for the human condition. We are destined to be trapped and sunk low in the human condition. Acts 4 verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. As I've challenged you in the past, I challenge you again today, and I will continue to challenge you, friends. Center your life on Jesus Christ. Let the focus of your life not simply be rules. Let the rules be the product of a life centered on Jesus Christ. Let the standard be the product of a life centered on Jesus Christ. Let your efforts and your, your yearnings, let, let everything about your life, everything that you do in your life be centered on Jesus Christ. Because if your life is centered on Him, there is hope for you. Our High Calling, page 58. When the soul is brought into close relationship with the great author of light and truth, impressions are made upon it, revealing its true position before God. Then self will die, pride will be laid low, and Christ will draw his own image in deeper lines upon the soul. So, what's the key? Committing, committing at least every day, at the very least every day, to having devotions. That's your lifeline, friends. You know, at the beginning of January, we made an appeal for individuals in this church to commit to having devotions. Since the beginning of January, I'd like to just ask how many of you have continued to have daily devotions? Can you raise your hand up high? Amen. Praise the Lord. God will continue to bless you. I want to encourage you to press forward. Don't give up those daily devotions. You might be tired, but don't give it up. Don't give it up. Something. I believe there's, 
you know, we need to get to a, a standard. We need to have uh, daily devotions. Uh, Ellen White talks about a d- an hour a day. Keep Satan away. Well, it doesn't quite go that way, but she says an hour, an hour, thoughtful hour contemplating the life of Christ. But I'm under the firm conviction that everybody has to start somewhere. Something is better than nothing. Something, my friends, is better than nothing. If you feel like you can, you only have enough faith to start with something, start with something, friends, for goodness sakes. This is your eternal life. You need Jesus or you are destined for, and I hate to say it, but it's the truth. Without Christ, we are destined for hell. Something is better than nothing. There are those who did not raise their hands today, which indicates that you may not be having personal devotions in your life. I want to make an appeal to you today to change that, to commit and plan today to make that change in your life. We don't have time, friends, to focus just on the things of this world. We need Christ to fill our hearts, to fill our minds. We need that lifeline. Without it, we will not see heaven. I want to make an appeal to you today as if Christ were standing before you. Today, will you decide to have daily devotions with the Lord? For those of you who are feeling under the conviction of the Lord to make that commitment or to recommit, to remake that commitment, I want to ask you before the Lord to raise your hand. Say, Lord, I want to commit to having daily devotions. I want to focus my life on you. Amen. 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 Gracious Father, seal that conviction, I pray. Seal that decision, I pray. There's one other, there's one other appeal I want to make, and that, that is for those who are having daily devotions. You know, Jesus said, you search the Scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. There is a way of reading the Bible that does not include seeking for Jesus. Perhaps you've had devotions like that where you read... And at the end, you're about as empty as you began. And you pray, and you're about as empty as you began. The devotions that make a difference in people's lives are devotions that are centered on Jesus Christ. To study His life, His birth, His childhood, His his teaching ministry, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, to study the life of Christ now in the heavenly sanctuary, to study Christ is what brings life to our devotions. And I want to challenge you, if you are currently doing devotions, that you would begin making Jesus a central part of your devotions, that you would study the Bible to discover Christ. There's something that may be helpful for you in following Ellen White's counsel to contemplate the life of Jesus. And it's a little acronym called VIM. You've heard of VIM and vigor? If you want to have vigor, you need to have VIM. If you want to have vigor in your spiritual life, maybe bring a little VIM into your devotional life. 
What does VIM stand for? V, visualize. As we're reading the Bible, we can, we can read the Bible without actually experiencing the Bible in our mind. You ever read, been reading a book and your mind goes somewhere else and before you know it, you're at the bottom of the page of the book and you have no idea what you read? Anybody here? Come on, admit it. I've done it before. Yeah, you can do that in your devotions too. In order to keep your mind from wandering, visualize what you are reading. If it says Jesus is in a boat, close your eyes and picture Jesus in the boat. If it says Jesus reached out and touched the woman, that her flow of blood... Uh, the woman reached out and touched the hem of his garment that the flow of blood might, might cease. Imagine in your mind that woman pressing through the crowds to touch the hem of Jesus. Imagine in your mind what it would have been like to see this woman pressing through the crowds. Now we come to I, them. Visualize what's going on. I imagine. Imagination is a powerful tool. I'm not talking about contemplative prayer, friends not telling you to chant in your room. I'm telling you, just imagine the stories you're reading. Imagine yourself there on the, on the lake. Imagine yourself there with Jesus. Imagine what it would have been like had you been that woman who touched his, the fringe of his garment and your sickness was healed by his power. Imagine what it would be like to stretch out your faith and, and, and have Jesus heal you as you, as you touch, his, touch, his, touch his garment. Imagine... Jesus, what it would have been like to see Jesus, uh, see Jesus walk and talk, hear his words, feel his touch, sense his power. After you visualized and imagined the M. Now, what does M stand for? Imitate. I, I know M imitates his eye, but you know, it, it kind of goes along. Imitates. Imitate. So M is for imitate. You'll never forget it now. M is for imitate. As you behold your Savior, we should allow our hearts to long to be like Him in every way. Study His life to learn how to be like Jesus. And friends, I'm confident that if you have daily devotions like this, where you're studying the life of Christ, you're visualizing yourself there with Him, you're, you're imagining what it would have been like to hear His words, and you imitate, you determine in your heart to imitate Jesus. You will have vim and vigor in your life. Because the Bible promises us that as we behold Him, we are changed into the same image. Amen. Amen. How many of you want to be changed into that image? Amen. Let's pray to the Lord that the Lord will, will allow us to be changed into his image. Our gracious Father, we want to become more and more like Jesus. But we also realize that that doesn't just happen by osmosis or by hope. It happens as we contemplate the life of Christ. And so, Lord, I want to pray and commit. And if you feel that the Lord wants you to commit, I want you to gently raise your hand to the Lord. Say, Lord, I want to commit 
in my devotions and in my life to centering my life on Jesus Christ. I want to visualize and imagine and take in each scene that, of, of what I read in Scripture and in the desire of ages of the life of Christ. I want to take it into my life and so until I myself begin to walk and talk like Jesus. I believe this morning that if I fill my mind with Christ, if I choose to focus my mind on Christ, that I will become like Him. And this is my hope, Lord. Please, make me like Jesus. My prayer, my hope, and your promise to me I receive. In Christ's name. Amen.